turn to the book of Daniel, odd text for an Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday uh, sermon. If you're visiting with us, it may seem really strange. Uh, but the, the story of Daniel in the den of lions is, uh, is an interesting um, text for Resurrection Sunday because it is a foreshadowing. There's a lot of foreshadowing, archetypical uh, type conversation that goes on in the narrative pointing to what would be the tomb of Jesus. So as, we've, uh, as, a, as we have, as a church have gone through the study of Daniel and we're now in our, let's see, we're in chapter 6. We're in our seventh week because we did two weeks in chapter one. Um, and I've, I've heard a lot of comments. People have talked a lot just in and out of conversation about how much we as a church have enjoyed the study, um, how much we have benefited from it, how much we've learned when you study texts that are stories that you've known your whole life. Uh, that's kind of a double-edged sword because in one sense, you feel like you already know the story. But we know as believers that the deeper you go, uh, the more there is to learn, and it's been an incredibly practical um, deal. Now, and Jen Forchetti drove this conversation for years. Uh, when we decided we were going to uh, teach through Daniel, I, I didn't know if I wanted to call Jen or I just wanted to let it be a surprise because I was afraid she might bust my eardrums. You know, she'd been wanting to do this for so long. But I'm going to tell you all, starting next week, it gets really, really weird. Just going to tell you imagery that we're trying to figure out what to do with as your pastors because the the narrative to this point it's been a narrative y'all know what narrative is right it's just storytelling and it's historically accurate storytelling we're going to get into prophetic literature and prophecy that has already been fulfilled is not that hard to to work through because we look back at it and we go oh yeah this is i see where you know the messianic psalms i see how jesus fulfilled those prophecies. But when there's prophecy that has not yet been fulfilled mixed with prophecy that maybe has been fulfilled, but maybe hasn't, but really smart theologians can't agree on it, it gets really tricky. So the next few weeks are going to be really good for us as a church just because we're going to have to grind it out and work through some tough texts. But tonight we're going to come to this really familiar story and um, uh, and, and I'm excited to work through it. So Daniel chapter 6, verse 1, what's happened is we're in the middle of a transition of power. We heard last week, uh, we saw in uh, chapter 5 how the Babylonian Empire came to, boom, an abrupt end um, after uh, seven decades. So the first five chapters cover seven decades of history. We worked through those seven decades of history over the last few weeks. And then it comes to an abrupt end. And it's a weird end. Frat party, 18-year-old grandson of the king like throwing a drunken party while the dad's outside fighting the enemy it's it's a strange story and then everything just ends and when we get to chapter six some time has passed we don't know how much time but we saw last week that Daniel was an old dude well he's real old now okay so time has passed we've now transitioned from the Babylonian empire to the Persian empire so we're under a new reign a new rule a new king that guy's name is Cyrus or Darius and it'll be Darius in our text tonight so Daniel chapter 6 verse 1 it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss 
Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So what's happening is Daniel is, uh, Daniel's in this. So Babylon falls. We know that a lot of the Jews got to go back to Israel, but a lot of them stayed in the Persian Empire, like at the, at the center of the Persian Empire. And Daniel's one of the ones that stayed. And, and the question might be, I wonder why he didn't go back. And we don't know. We're not told that. But we would assume that God still had work for him to do in this new kingdom. And we see what that work looks like as this trans, uh, like transfer or transition of power is taking place. One king is gone. New king is coming in. And what the Babylonians did is they ruled. You remember, they ruled like with an iron fist. They rule with fear and authority and torture and punishment, and they control people that way. The Persians come in, and what their king does is he establishes an ordered system of law. And so you've got these 120 satraps would be something like, I think there's 90-something district courts in America, be something like that. And then you've got these three sort of like, like justices of what would be like the Supreme Court. And Daniel is then like the chief justice. So you've got the Persian law and order, and then you've got a court system that supports it. And then you've got a high court that would be like our Supreme Court with three justices and the chief justice is Daniel. And it says there's a good spirit in him. And there's a couple principles that I want to point out right there. One is that when the spirit of God is in you and when you are walking in the spirit, And when every single day of your life, you set your steps and you order your life to walk in the Spirit, as the New Testament commands us to do. Walk by the Spirit, you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. Live by the Spirit, you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. The man who sets his mind on the things of the Spirit, for that man there is life and peace, the Bible says in Romans 8. Think about that. Set your mind on the Spirit, there is life and peace. Okay, And in Romans 8, Paul goes on to say, and I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed. So even in the midst of tribulation, because then he goes on and says, what will separate us from the love of God? Will tribulation, will trial, will famine, will sword, no matter what happens, to walk in the Spirit and set my mind on the Spirit will bring life and peace. And Daniel's showing us what that looks like. But additionally, when a person walks in the Spirit, oftentimes the Spirit of God in a person will be a blessing even to people that aren't believers. So if you're a Christian and you work with non-believers or you have family members who are non-believers, the Spirit of God in you, if you'll walk by the Spirit, can be a blessing and will be a blessing to other people. We see that happen with Daniel. So Daniel's in this really elevated position as sort of like a chief justice. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a, uh, a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. Why are they mad at Daniel? I, he's twice removed Jewish exile. He's a slave. He's got no Persian roots. And he's gotten put in this. He's, they, they are answering to a Jewish eunuch. They're answering to a Jewish exile who has been in the service to the Babylonian Empire. Some of these guys probably were shocked to even find out this guy's not even Babylonian, he's Jewish. And later they, they, they call him Jewish, they recognize that he's Jewish. So he goes from Jewish slave to Babylonian exile to now the Babylonian Empire has fallen and we don't know what Daniel does to, to stay in this position, but the king of Persia puts him in the, literally like the most elevated position in the Persian Empire. Well, just think, just, let's just think for a minute. Do you know jealous people in your life? 
Do you know people that are not happy if you get a promotion or if your business does well or if life is going good for you? It is human nature not only to be jealous but to act in that jealousy against the person who's the object of your jealousy. So you've got these guys and they're coming against Daniel so, so they're, they're, they're trying to find a ground for a complaint against him. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Okay, so think of, uh, this is like, think of an election year when one group of uh, political people are trying to dig up dirt on another political party. Because you got, this will happen when, uh, think of um, the presidential primary and you got all these candidates Early in the game, a couple of them will fall off because one of them smoked a joint and got high or one of them had an affair with his wife or one of them was like paying for prostitutes. You'll hear these moral failures and like, which are becoming less and less disqualifying in our society, you know? Remember when Clinton was like, oh, I didn't inhale. Now guys are like, yeah, I smoke pot. I smoke now. I do it now. I'm running for president. Like that's kind of the degradation of our society, right? But so you'll see what happens is we've got to dig up dirt, but it's got to be dirt that's that's perceived as dirt by the general public so these guys are trying to dig up dirt the problem is they can't find anything on daniel because daniel's just too good he's they're like oh we don't know he's, this guy prays a lot he helps little old ladies across the street he's he teaches he, he teaches in the after school program and he volunteers to do that he's a supreme court justice and he coaches little league like we don't know what to do with this guy and so they said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So consider this. Consider this. These men start digging for dirt. They can't find anything. And they realize that if they're going to be able to accuse Daniel, it will be based on his faithfulness to God. So they will manipulate circumstances and situations to pit God's faithfulness to Daniel and Daniel's faithfulness to God against Daniel's faithfulness to the king. Verse 6, these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. It literally means they're like behind closed doors. I think it was David Helms that said this is the events that led to Daniel being cast into the lion's den or nothing sort of short of smoke-filled backroom plotting by men who were intent on bringing Daniel down. That word, in, uh, that phrase came by agreement that appears in verse 6 will appear again in verses 11 and 15. And the idea is that they're conspiring against Daniel. This is a conspiracy against Daniel. And so the plan they come up with is to convince the king that he should be God alone for a month. Verse 7, all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors uh, are agreed uh, oh, I'm sorry, verse 6. Um, they came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. They say all, all the satraps. But did all the satraps meet? No, there's one that wasn't there. This is a conspiracy, and they've kept Daniel out of it. So they're being dishonest. That's what jealousy does. It drives you to a point of dishonesty, dishonesty and manipulation. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunctions. He's like, uh, me, be God for a month? 
Yeah, okay, that sounds great. People can worship me and it'll be awesome. This is, you see this with these maniacal kings. But Darius seems to be different in the early formation of his character development than Nebuchadnezzar was. Because think about this. What you've got is a bunch of people from a bunch of different religious backgrounds being brought under the rule of one king. And the way these guys present this to the king is they say, we need to get everybody on the same page. They need to see you for who they are. They were under the Nebuchadnezzar line of kings. And a lot of them still hold loyalties to, to them. We need to show them that this is better and we need to make you king. And so it only makes sense that people would only pray to you for the next 30 days. And, and, and I don't know if Darius was like, that's cool. I get to be God for a month. I don't want to be God forever, just for a month. That'll be great. People can ask me into their hearts. We can get bracelets, write worship songs. It'll be wonderful. I don't know if it's like that, you know, or if he's like, yeah, that makes sense. This will consolidate the kingdom. It'll get everybody kind of behind the plan, get everybody on the same page. But here's the, here's the thing that we need to understand in these verses, verses four through nine. These men stand and serve as a great and sober warning for us of where pride and comparison and jealousy and envy will lead. Now, there's an interesting twist here. On one hand, no one is more faithful to this king than Daniel. Think about it. Think about it. It says that there's a good spirit in Daniel, and this pagan king who has conquered Babylon picks Daniel to rule over all of his native Persian judges. What do you think? You think Darius likes Daniel? Yeah. You think Daniel's useful to Darius? Yeah. You think he trusts Daniel? Yeah. This is what we're seeing is there is some sort of a bond in a relationship that really surfaces later in the story between the king and Daniel. This is, they got a strong relationship. What these guys understand is that not only has Daniel been put in this elevated position, but he deserves to be there. And because they're walking by the flesh, that eats at them worse than anything. They know that Daniel is more faithful to the king than they are. Not just that Daniel is the object of their jealousy, not just that Daniel is a Jew, not just that Daniel is a slave, but he's legitimately more faithful to the king than they are. For a pagan king to elevate a twice-removed Jewish slave in exile to such a powerful position shows not only that the favor and hand of the Lord was with Daniel, but that Daniel had earned great favor in the sight of the king for his faithfulness to the king. But... While Daniel would be more faithful than anyone else in all of the kingdom to the king, he would never worship the king. So there's an appropriate degree of allegiance in the relationship. This is, there's a lesson here for us as humans because we tend to worship the affection of other people. We tend to put other people, a son, a daughter, our kids, our spouse, someone that we put on a pedestal. Daniel didn't do that. Daniel loved the king purely but it was such a mature love because his ultimate fidelity was to God and he worshiped God, but he loved the king. But he would never worship the king. And they understood this. They understood where his faithfulness lay. The king seals the order, making it statutory law. Even the king, according to Persian law, doesn't have the authority to reverse this. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, when Daniel knew the document had been signed, uh, he went to the house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So what does Daniel do? What, are, what do you think Daniel's options were? So Daniel hears uh, there's this conspiracy. Okay, first off, Daniel's not skate. All the pictures in the children's storybooks, Daniel's a young guy. 
in the lion's den. Have you noticed that? When he's in the lion's den, young dude, young, there's, I'm telling you, if you want to, parents, I don't know if you watch the Superbook series with your kids. Let me tell you why I recommend it. Because in Superbook, Daniel has a mullet. You just let that sink in. Whoever the artists were, I say thumbs up enthusiastically. Okay, so Daniel's this young guy. Look, Daniel didn't come down. <laughs> Daniel didn't roll up to the uh, like palace every day on his skateboard. Like walker, oxygen tank. There's little tennis balls on the walk. That's Daniel. Here he comes to work, ruling over. You know, like because Supreme Court justice for life, right? That's a position for life. Here he comes, 85, 90 years old. And he shows up. So when he hears this, first off, have you ever noticed how you don't, you, you cannot change an old person's mind if they don't want it changed? You got grandparents or parents who you're like, I tried to talk some sense into him. He won't hear. Like, there's an age, like, you know, we talk about when, there's a, when you're a little kid, there's an age of accountability. When, when you get old, there's an age of, I don't give a rat's hairy rear end what anybody thinks. It's a good place to get to, you know? Like, it's a good place to be. So, da- so there's, in one sit, pa- Patty, Patty got there at a younger age than most, all right? So, so Daniel, like Daniel has lived his whole, but here's the thing, Daniel has lived his entire life with deep conviction. And, and with deep, con- listen to me, Red Oak, with deep conviction comes constant consistency. Because when you believe something deep down in the core of who you are, it will guide more than one hour of your Sunday. It will guide more than anything else in your life. It will, it will literally give you your identity. Daniel's identity is not that he was a slave or an exile. His identity is not that he was a Jew. His identity is not in the money he made. The dude is filthy rich, filthy rich, second in command in two different kingdoms, president over the entire Babylonian and Medo-Persian university system. Like that dude's making a lot of money. His identity's not in his alliances or allegiances in this world. He knows who he is because the spirit of God is in him. And for a believer, when the Spirit of God lives and dwells inside of us, that gives you identity. And you know who you are and you live with conviction. But you don't just live with conviction, you live with consistency. And inconsistency will ruin everything in anybody's life. Inconsistency in a a marriage makes the marriage very difficult. Inconsistency in parenting ruins relationships and drives rebellion. Inconsistency in ministry from ministry leaders is disqualifying according to the scripture. Nobody's perfect, but a consistent pattern of living is critical for the Christian. Daniel's been consistent. What could he have done right here? He could have gone, uh, you know what? For 30 days, I'm going to kind of wear a reversible jersey here. And when I'm in front of the king, I'm going to give him homage. Okay? But I'm going to go up to my room. He had to have like a presidential suite because we know it's high. Like the window's open. Everybody can see him. Let me shut the windows, slide back on the back side of the room, and I'm going to pray to God. But he doesn't do that. He does, listen, y'all, he does what he's been doing for 70 years. Daniel doesn't have to make adjustments when a crisis strikes. We saw this. If you think back to 
the story where he gets brought in and they're going to kill all of the wise men in the land. What does Daniel do? He's like, hey, fellas, let's pray. Why? Because that's what he always does. He prays. He's got this consistent pattern of living. So when they're like, hey, here's the deal. If you pray, Daniel's like, I'm going to go. This is what I do. I open, I open the door, the windows, and I kneel, and I pray three times a day, and so that's what he does. This has been his pattern for over 70 years. He had some other options. He could have run away. He could have obeyed. He could have compromised. Compromise was not in Daniel's spiritual DNA. He's consistent, completely consistent. Be simple to uh, take this prayer. Uh, for most of us, we probably admit that our prayer lives can be complex, uh, we struggle, or our prayer lives can feel anemic because uh, we can be somewhat complex um, in the way that we look at prayer. I know for me, a lot of times I think, um, I think prayer needs to be something more elaborate than it probably needs to be. Daniel prayed consistently three times a day. I want to look at, I want to look at uh, some, some different things. We can look, four aspects we can learn from Daniel's prayer life. The first one is the focus of prayer. The focus of prayer. What is Daniel praying? Well, he, he gives thanks before his God as he had done previously, and we see that he looks toward Jerusalem. Why, is that, why does that matter? Here's why it matters. In 1 Kings, 8, uh, 1 Kings 8, Solomon dedicates the temple, and in his dedication, he says, when our people are exiled in a foreign land, may they turn towards Jerusalem and pray for the restoration of this temple. Daniel is praying in obedience with Scripture. So the first focus of prayer is that we pray in accordance with the Word of God. He's just doing what, the, what, what he believed that Christians were supposed to do. And according to Scripture, it was what they were supposed to do. Number two, consider the defiance of prayer. Daniel was an honorable a citizen as there could have been in all of the Persian kingdom, but he appealed to a higher power and authority. When the laws of the land govern that we disobey the laws of God, then we will defy those laws. Prayer is also a defiant act against the enemy when it comes to the devil. In Ephesians 6, the prayer of supplication is literally an offensive weapon. So his prayer is not only a prayer in line with Scripture and a prayer of focus, but it's a prayer of defiance. Next, consider the consistency of prayer. He prayed three times a day and was so consistent in this that everyone knew it. In fact, the entire argument against Daniel was set up around the fact that they knew his consistency and he wouldn't deviate from this pattern. They knew three times a day, he's going to pray. Everybody knows it. We'll catch him. We'll deal with him. Number four, consider the posture of prayer. There's no rule that says we have to close our eyes or kneel down, but these outward signs of attitude, of submission, should be more than outward gestures. These physical characteristics of prayer remind me of my true position before God. Daniel lived and walked in a fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowing God. And Daniel feared the Lord. He feared the Lord. Probably most of us, to be honest, if we're honest with ourselves, this is an area where we tend to drift towards a place of seeing God in too comfortable or common a way. And we don't walk in fear. Daniel walked with fear before the Lord. Verse 11, then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and pleas uh, and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? These guys are so conniving because it says again, they came by agreement. So they, so after, so they conspire, they get the plan. Then they go watch Daniel pray. They collect the evidence. 
Then they go to the king. They don't tell him what Daniel's done. They say, okay, remember the injunction. Remember the edict. Let's make sure that we're on the same page here. If someone prays to any god other than you, then it's consequential by death, right? So they, they, they get the king's affirmation before they reveal to him that it's Daniel. The king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. So they conspire. They, they've got Daniel entrapped. So in verse 13, they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah. By the way, that is a racial, demeaning, belittling comment. Oh, talk about the Jewish boy, the slave boy. You know, the slave boy, oh, you mean the honorable chief justice of our court system? This is, a, this is a classic example of little bitty men looking at a giant man and trying to demean and belittle him so that they can, that's what people do, y'all. When, like, like, as Christians, if we know who we are in Christ, we will look at others with respect and dignity and honor. The gospel elevates people to a level position before God through the blood of Jesus. This is every single commentator that we've read and studied says this is a racial slight. They're attacking him for his Jewish roots. They're, they're demeaning him. This is, this is uh, pay attention how you refer to somebody and make sure that you speak to people with dignity. I, I, I heard some guy recently, and he said, you know, that, he said, oh, that boy, that's something. And he was talking about a grown man. And I went, wait a minute, are you talking about so-and-so? And he said, yeah, 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 yeah. And I said, well, he's not a boy. He's a, he's a grown man. He has a job, a business, drives his own vehicle, lives in the house that he pays for, has raised. It was a real awkward conversation, which I really enjoy creating sometimes. <laughs> so when you're calling him a boy, what do you mean by that? I, 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 I was like, come on, man. Just speak with respect when it comes to other people, right? There's no dignity seen. These guys are tearing at every thread of Daniel's character. He pays no attention to you, king. Listen, quick, quick advice on parenting. What happens is, when, have you ever had this happen? A kid comes to you, and they make an accusation. Ever had that happen before you've heard the other side? Teach, we got school teachers here. My heart is full tonight because Moses' school teachers are here, who I love those two ladies so much because of how much they love my son. I started crying earlier. We're taking the Lord's Supper. We're going to baptize him tonight. So we let him take the Lord's Supper for the first time, walking through it. I'm thinking about the, the influence of so many people in his life. But as a school teacher or as a parent, kid comes to you with an accusation. The court, the court of parenting. The one who makes the accusation 95% of the time is the criminal. That's a principle, you young parents, Nixons, okay, listen, when she, she's beautiful, she's cute, she's center of attention, when there's another Nixon kid, so any parents, the, the accuser is usually the criminal. I'll give you an example that a friend of mine told me. One kid comes in the living room, and he's screaming, and he's crying, and he says, my brother hit me in the head with my truck. Dad goes in the other room, good parenting. Let's get both sides, okay, of the story. Did you hit your brother in the head with the truck? Mm-hmm. Why? Well, because he stole my truck from me and hit me in the head with it. 
Okay, that's not a crime. That's self-defense. That's allowed even in a like judicial court of law in our country. Okay, so there's two sides to this, right? So there's two sides to every story, and so we've got there needs to be some sort of decency in the way we handle it. So they come and they make this accusation. He doesn't pay attention to you, King. That Jewish boy didn't even pay attention to you. Such a low blow. Look, have enough decency as a human not to talk about other people. Not to belittle other people for making more money than you. Not to degrade other people because their kids turn out better than yours. Don't complain about the government. Don't complain about your business. Don't complain about the school teachers. Don't complain about the school board unless you're going to get off your rear end and do something about it. Because our churches are full. Well, none of our churches are full. They're all two-thirds empty with a few people left who are doing nothing to do anything for anybody except complain about those who are doing something to try to advance anything positive. That's the world we live in now. It's, it's like second nature to complain about your boss or your kid's teacher or the coach. or like We are such an entitled society. And if we could only understand, that's what's happening here. It's rooted in an entitlement mentality. Well, we're Persian. We deserve to do this. And so we're going to remove Daniel. And along the way, we're going to take some cheap shots at him. The king, when he heard what had happened... Verse 14, he was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. What are they doing? They're just, they're, man, they're driving it deep. They're making sure he understands. The, king appear, he's, he's, there's, the king's torn here because he loves Daniel. Does the king love Daniel? Yeah, he loves Daniel. It's not, is, the, is Daniel useful to the king? Yeah, he's useful to him, but a bunch of people were probably useful to the king. Why, is, why has Daniel been elevated? Because he loves Daniel. The king cares about Daniel. We've seen a lot of character development as we've studied through the book of Daniel. With Nebuchadnezzar, we saw a bunch of character development. But if you look at this king, just in this text, as we're being introduced to this king, there's a bunch of character development beginning in verse 12, and you follow the progression. Verse 12, the king seems very naive, and he's easily duped by these men. Then in verse 14, he seems genuinely compassionate. You know, he doesn't want Daniel to be killed. He doesn't want Daniel to be hurt. But ultimately, in verse 16, he's helpless. He's helpless. It's a good reminder of what David wrote in Psalm 146, 3 through 4, that says, don't put your trust in earthly kings. Don't put your trust in earthly, earthly kings. Like, we, we vote and we lobby and we write our, administ- I mean, our, our representatives and we do what we can and we, we get involved the best we can. But ultimately, our trust is in the Lord. Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so David says, don't put your hope in earthly kings because even this man who is so powerful cannot ultimately be the source of our hope. Daniel didn't come out of the, like, like barely escaped the Babylonian fall. And then the Persians come. He's like, just be quiet and stay in the corner and let the dust settle. No, like he confidently walked through that transition. God elevated him and he understands who he is in Christ. But his hope is not in Darius, the king, any more than it was in Nebuchadnezzar. Like you never see Daniel 
like crumble and get weak need and beg and plead before earthly kings. He understands where his hope lies. And the stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed. So verse 16, I'm sorry. Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. Okay, <clears throat> this is really cool. This is, let, me, let me read through verse 20. Then I mean, what is my, like one of my favorite points in the story here. A stone, verse 17, a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fed from him, fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Verse 16, the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. Ultimately, it was the king who had the authority to release Daniel and overturn the statute, but he did not. The, the, like, the supposition is, what, what commentators think is that probably because you're dealing with this transfer of power, he needs to show himself strong, and as much as he loves Daniel, he can't show himself weak. If he's made this edict and instantly he changes it, it would, it would look compromising in, his, in terms of his leadership style. But I love something that a couple of these guys pointed out. A couple of interpretations should be thought about. Some people would say, uh, probably more common, what we've heard is that he made a declaration of appeal to Daniel's God. Almost like, please, God, if Dan, Daniel, if your God's real, maybe, maybe he'll bail you out. Kind of like fingers crossed, hoping against hope. It's like you tossed him into the den of lions and said, okay, hopefully your God will save you. I really do hope that, but I don't know. But another argument, this is awesome, that could, that could be reality, and I believe likely is more based on the vernacular. The king believes so strongly in Daniel because of Daniel's testimony to the king, of, of how the king has seen Daniel's God move in Daniel's life, that he's actually declaring Daniel's deliverance. It's as if he's saying, okay, we will obey the statute. We will follow through. We will, I will even seal the stone. But I believe that the God of Daniel will deliver his faithful servant, Daniel. There's some desperation in the king because he's not yet a man of true faith. But he has some level of confidence in Daniel's God. How do we know this? Well, consider the fact that the king stays up all night and comes first thing in the morning to the den to see Daniel. If he had no confidence that, confidence that Daniel would survive the night, why bother? Listen to what Dale Ralph Davis argues in his uh, commentary. That in the Aramaic language in which this is written, the emphatic pronouns and final verb are a clear declaration. In other words, the king is not making a wish, but declaring an affirmation in the Aramaic tongue. In the Aramaic structure of the sentence, the king says, very well, but Daniel's God will deliver him, so roll the stone. He's seen something in Daniel and in his God. In fact, one thing that I couldn't get off my mind this week is I can't help but wonder if the king, rather than trying to change the statute or make an exception, drives through the statute knowing that the God of Daniel will be seen in all of his power, at least trusting and hoping that he will. That when the night is over, justification will be in order to execute Daniel's accusers. It's a, it's a, it's a crazy world, the Persian world of, of, of rule. When Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, the king's seal is placed over the mouth of the den. 
the king cancels all of his cancels all of his evening activity and spends the night fasting and doesn't go to sleep. Isn't it interesting that the lions spend the night fasting as well? Daniel slept. The lions slept. Song about that. I was going to write one this week. I realized somebody beat me to it. The king doesn't sleep. You see this constant contrast throughout Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel and Belshazzar, Daniel and different people within. Daniel is always at peace. And these people that are in such positions of power and authority are always disrupted. It's a good, like, like a lesson that we teach in Bible school to our kids. There is no amount of money. There is no amount of earthly security. There is no amount of education. You can't own enough houses, own enough stocks, own enough cash in the bank to buy peace for your soul. You can't do it. But the God of peace will give it to you even in bondage and slavery and exile. Daniel's got peace. Verse 21. Then Daniel said to the king, Oh, king, live forever. I I can't help. Here's what I think happened. You ever answer the phone? You slept. Okay, you overslept. I remember one time Rob called me. It was this was probably five or six years ago, and we had a we had a meeting one morning, and it was during the middle of summer camp, and I had over I just slept through my alarm, and I was just and the phone rings, and I'm like, oh, it's I think it's the alarm going off. It must be like five in the morning, and it's like seven thirty, and we've got like a seven forty five meeting, and I'm like, it's Rob. Oh, it's seven forty five. Hello. You try to not have the sleepy voice. You ever do that? Hey, hey, I've been up for hours. Days. I didn't even sleep last night. I've been up for days going on Red Bull and caffeine. It's awesome. What's up, man? What have you accomplished today? I've accomplished so much. Maybe I fooled him. I literally, I was asleep seven seconds ago. Like, I'm talking about REM sleep where your eyes are doing that one thing and you're dreaming about weird stuff that you don't want to tell people. Like, like that's where I was seven seconds ago. Hello? Like, I think Daniel's, like, curled up on a line. He's got another, he's spooning a line. He's got a line spooning him. It's like a party. And everybody's sleeping. It's a legit sleepover. And the king's like, Daniel! And he's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Hey, hey, king. Did you bring coffee? You know, like, what's going on? And so, so Daniel, Daniel speaks out to the king. And it's interesting because in verses 21 to 23, it's the only time in the whole story that Daniel talks. So we should pay attention. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. Jesus standing before Pilate. And Pilate looks at Caiaphas and Annas and all of the scribes and the Sanhedrin, and he says, I find no guilt in this man. At the center of the gospel is an innocent Savior who has never sinned, who was not born into sin, and who conquered where the first Adam failed. Daniel standing before this king innocent because he's standing innocent before a higher throne. Also before you, O king, I've done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Daniel's brief response expresses only two things. God sent his angels and shut the lion's mouths. There's people that'll say, well, the lions probably weren't hungry. Okay, just hang on. 
for the next scene. <laughs> and they're lions. They're always hungry for meat. That's all that matters. It's the only thing that anyone needs to know. But in verse 23, upon examination, Daniel's testimony is confirmed. They pull him out and he's good. He's raised out of the pit. And the king commanded, verse 24, those who were maliciously accused, had maliciously accused Daniel, were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them, broke all their bones in pieces. That one usually doesn't make the super book story. I'm just, I'm just trying to picture how the VeggieTales crew would have handled this. Interesting fact, not only in Persian Eastern judicial law, but also in the book of Deuteronomy, there was provision made that if you make an accusation and it is a false accusation based on lies and false testimony and you are discovered, think of if you ever watch, <laughs> I don't know if you ever watched Matlock. I'm an Andy Griffith like junkie, okay? So I, like Andy Griffith, the show, Andy Griffith show, seen them all 17 times, okay? Can, can tell you like which episodes which, all right? But Matlock, my man finished strong, right? His career, he so in Matlock, did you ever, if you ever watched it, by the end of the trial, he would have convinced everybody in the room who the actual criminal was, which is actually not legal in American courts of law, but it made for great Monday night television <laughs> in the 80s, okay? So what happens is if someone is found to be guilty of false uh, testimony, whatever the punishment for the accused's would-be crime was is then assigned to that person. Two, so, so a couple things that I want to point out. So these men under Persian law now will be punished with the penalty that Daniel would have been punished with. They're to be cast into the den of lions. Persian law, Jewish law. But there's a principle here that I think matters because their wives and kids get thrown in with them. Men, what we do has deep and lasting effect on our sons and daughters. How you live your life will come and go in about three decades, four decades, but about 18 to 20 years of legitimate influence. But the repercussions for our actions will play out for multiple generations. Your actions as a man matter for more than just the consequences you will individually pay. And if there's a principle that is glaring in truth, and every one of us could probably give testimony to, that's the principle. Verse 25. Look how the story ends. This is awesome. Then King Darius. Daniel, by the way, is, wins the evangelism award for all of history. Two World empire kings have now been led to Christ through the missionary Daniel. It's awesome. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he's the living God. What's he declare about Daniel's God? Who is Daniel's God? Jesus. What's he declare about him? He lives. What do we celebrate today? He lives. 
He is not dead like Buddha. He's not in the grave like Allah or Muhammad. He lives. Our Savior lives. Daniel's God is the living God, enduring forever. Not only does he live, but he will never stop living. There's never been a time when he didn't live. There will never be a time when he doesn't live. He will endure forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues salvation. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persians. Let me say this in conclusion. Because Daniel didn't compromise. He was able to live out his testimony in such a way that other people saw the power of Daniel's God. This is the way a testimony works. The root word of testimony is test. When we go through difficulties, we're able to live with conviction and obedience in such a way that others are blessed by that. There's so many parallels to the trial and execution of Jesus as we celebrate that today, the resurrection of our Lord. Consider this, just as Pilate knew that there was no guilt to be found in Jesus, King Darius knew that there was no guilt to be found in Daniel. Just as Pontius Pilate had the authority to release Jesus, but didn't, King Darius had the authority to release Daniel, but didn't. Just as Pontius Pilate gave in to the deafening mob of accusers, King Darius gave in to the demands of those around him. Even on the cross, Jesus quoted Psalm 22 saying, save me from the mouth of the lion. And now on this Sunday, where we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, let's consider that Jesus is the greater Daniel. First off, Jesus is the God that Daniel worships. Daniel, like Jesus, had false political leaders conspire within the world system of government and society and religion to come up with false charges to have him put to death. King Darius declared Daniel faultless and guilt-free. As Jesus stood before both Pilate and Herod, he was declared to be innocent. Both Daniel and Jesus had these political leaders and kings try and spare them of their death sentence. And Daniel and Jesus were both then ultimately thrown into a pit and left for dead. Both Daniel and Jesus had the pit they were buried in covered with a large stone. And both Daniel and Jesus had that stone sealed with an official government seal. Both Daniel and Jesus had loving friends run to their tomb early in the morning. And both Daniel and Jesus were raised up out of the pit to assume second in command over a kingdom. Daniel eventually died, but Jesus defeated death and conquered the grave forever, never to die again. And one day Daniel will get out of his grave in a bodily resurrection, but for now he's in the presence of Jesus, the greater Daniel, experiencing freedom from death and condemnation and persecution and wicked world governments and pagan kings and the pressure of a godly society and false accusations and a robbed childhood and a stolen retirement and persecution for his faith. Here's the message of Daniel. Jesus Christ saves. Jesus Christ stops the mouths of lions, Red Oak. Jesus Christ is bigger than political parties and socialistic agendas that come against the advancing kingdom. Jesus Christ is bigger than erroneous laws that attack his law. Jesus Christ has conquered death. Jesus Christ has won the day. Jesus Christ will one day raise each of us just as he was raised out of our pit and place us in his palace where we will be with him forever because he lives. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, worship, and song. Lord, as we worship you because you are the God over death and you are the God over earthly kings, we worship you because you are worthy to be praised.
and we worship you because you have made a way for us to be able to worship you in spirit and in truth. You've made a way for condemnation to be removed and for salvation to be a reality for us. Jesus, I pray that we would consider the brevity of life. Daniel, whose almost century of life spans only a few chapters in the Bible, reminds us that there is only one life to live and it will soon be passed and only what's done for you will last. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would live our lives with our eyes fixed on something that is greater than ourselves and our circumstances and our moment. I pray that we'd live with eternal perspective. I pray that as, as your followers that we would be a light to others and that we would be a blessing to others as Daniel was to so many people. And I pray that on this Sunday where we celebrate your resurrection that we would do so with confidence realizing that the grave is empty and that you are risen and because of that we can walk in newness of life and celebration of life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.